I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz. And these are conversations about the news. We are in the midst of a communications revolution. We have access to more information than any people in history. But are we more informed or just overwhelmed by so much information we can't process it? These conversations are a year-long collaboration of the Bob Schieffer College of Communication at Texas Christian University and the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Now, everyone knows Bob Schieffer's a newsman, but not everyone knows how he became an anchorman. He wrote a song about it. Let's have a listen. Well, I left this job that I just took, started practicing my sincere look. They said I had the face of a man with heart. They wrote me some lines, taught me a style, drew a happy face on the script where I should smile, and the key demographics went right off the chart. I have to say they pay me good, a whole lot better than Stuckey's ever would, and a cute little stage manager gives me all my cues. Selling tractor hats and pumping gas, that's all part of my long ago past. Now I just sit there and read the news. So now you know, and here's Bob Schieffer. Joining us today is Nancy Youssef from the Daily Beast. She graduated from the University of Virginia, began her journalism career at the Baltimore Sun, then went on to join the Detroit Free Press, where she traveled through Jordan and Iraq to cover the Iraq War. She then uh, went to McClatchy Newspapers in 2005, continued to cover the Iraq War, and her stories focused many times on the everyday experience of Iraqi civilians. She then covered the Pentagon, after which she was named the National Security Correspondent and Middle Eastern Bureau Chief for McClatchy. She traveled extensively in that position to analyze how American policies reached Middle Eastern civilians and troops. In November 2014, she joined the Daily Beast, a news outlet providing original reporting and opinion, as their senior defense and national security correspondent, and that's where she is today. I will also note she is one of the few Muslim journalists covering national security in Washington. Nancy, uh, thanks so much for joining us. You've been a war correspondent for much of your career. Uh, We've talked about that uh, on this broadcast uh, before, podcast, I should say. But let's start there. What's it like for those of us who don't know what covering war is these days? So for me, the job is a way of an extension of, if you will, of my own experience, which is to be an Arab American, a Muslim American, and then living in the Middle East and kind of the ability to move between those two worlds. I often think of um, war reporting in the modern era as, um, you know, the, the... I think of the battle line, we think of big battle spaces moving, but to me the battle line is the Humvee going through the street. And my job is to be inside that Humvee with those troops and look outside those windows and not know who's going to attack us. And then to step outside that Humvee and be on the street and watch it drive by and not know if those soldiers inside are going to um, um, attack us. And so um, that's what I've tried to do is to maneuver between those two worlds because I feel like culturally I'm able to do so. Um, I often bifurcate my brain from when I'm in the United States versus when I'm on 
on the on a, on a war zone. To me, when I'm there, I have a very heightened sense of awareness. I'm not forgetful. I'm, I'm very keenly aware of things going on around me, and I'm also aware that things can change very suddenly and very dramatically. When you're overseas, you're you know it's um it's taking in all sorts of information. It's sort of like being in a very dark room with a very small flashlight, and you're studying everything you can see to assess the security situation and to assess what you're seeing and what that tells you and, more importantly, the reader about what's going on in the war that you're covering. You know, um, I was in Vietnam uh, back when I was a newspaper reporter for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. In those days, very few women. There were some very brave ones. I remember Jill Kremitz, who was a a famous photographer uh, in that war. But not many women uh, in the profession in those days. Now, so many of those covering Iraq and and the Middle East and and those conflicts are women, including uh, a lot of our people at uh, CBS News. How is it different for a woman? Well, I think it's a huge advantage, to tell you the truth. I mean, I, so often people think that because you're a woman in the Muslim world that somehow it's, a, it's more difficult. The reality is you have to take whatever you're bringing to the table and turn it into an advantage rather than sort of seeing yourself as being held back by it. And so it's given me an opportunity to see war from a different perspective, particularly urban warfare. So, for example, if we would be out on patrol with a unit and they'd go into a house, I could see how the women were reacting and not just the men and interact with them. And I could see how their children were reacting. I had the freedom to move into those parts of the experience in a way that a male reporter would not. Um, and sometimes you, you can be a little coy um, with it because a lot of times in the region there's an there's a, uh, inclination to underestimate women. And sometimes you use that to your advantage and let them underestimate you and then kind of go in for the tough questions when you think it's appropriate. So I've never seen it as a disadvantage. To me, it's been a wonderful way to approach war reporting differently. I think your job as a reporter is to take whatever you're bringing to the table, if it's a language skill, a cultural understanding, gender, any kind of background that you, in your own life that is applicable and to work it to your advantage. You, your job is not to cover every aspect, but to cover the things that you can um, as clearly, as succinctly, and as responsibly as possible. And of course, speaking the language must be a tremendous advantage. Tell us about growing up and how you bring that to the table because you have such a good understanding because your your parents, if I were, if memory serves, are, were Egyptian. Is that right? Yeah. It was a very classic American story. My, uh, my father came to the United States in 1970 with $220. We know that because under the Nasser government, they would put in your passport how much money you were leaving the country with. And he didn't know a soul um, when he came to the United States. It was just a pursuit of the American dream. And so... Um, he started in New York, and he loved New York. Um, but he didn't, you know, when, when they tell you on the American dream, no one mentions the possible discrimination that comes with it. And so he was and prepared for that. And so we ended up growing up in the Washington area because my dad took government work because he thought he would be less prone to discrimination that way. And so that's how this became my hometown. And my name became Nancy because he was hoping that if I had a more Western-sounding name, I would have an easier experience than he did. And so my whole life was kind of defined by this fear of discrimination. And at the same time, he was really proud of where he came from. And so we, I learned Arabic before I learned English. And um, we spoke um, at home. Arabic. And I first went to Egypt when I was 11 months old. And anytime we could pull the money to go there, we went. So I went every few years. So it was a wonderful way for me to sort of see the um, world in which I was living and how different it was from the region. And so 
it wasn't just the language that helped me, but being exposed to the Arab world at such a young age and understanding how different it was from my own American experience. You know, when you're talking to your cousins who have a completely different upbringing than you do, you're very keenly aware of the advantages that come with this country and, and what their experiences are. And I felt like that's what I was bringing to the table, that I knew how to walk differently and how to talk differently and how to engage differently because I had been doing it my whole life. And um, and it was a huge advantage. Of course, at the time, you don't see it that way. You're you're the strange kid on the block who speaks a different language and practices a different religion. But it ended up being the greatest gift to my career because I could not only speak the language, but I could maneuver and see little quirks and turns that told me things um, that, about the culture. Nancy, we've been friends a long time, and I always worry about you when you go into these conflict zones to cover them. When you decided to go to Libya, and cover the conflict there, and this is while Gaddafi was still in power, I was really worried. And I was emailing you every other day saying, you know, what's going on? Are there bullets and RPGs flying over your head? Can you tell us about the intensity of covering that kind of warfare, the kinetic nature of that situation, and how you managed to deal with it? So my experience is a little shaped by the fact that I was a bureau chief in Iraq and I my first foreign real foreign experience was in Iraq from 2003 to 2007 and because that was my first one I never felt I had the luxury to indulge in what the danger was to me because I was covering a conflict and responsible for 20 Iraqis whose country was falling apart and I was always aware that whatever was happening to me I had the option to leave that I had chosen to be there and they did not and so I never look at it this way like I'm putting myself in harm's way you're so focused on the moment. Okay, we're going to cross into Libya illegally. There are a bunch of um, trucks of strangers we don't know we're going to get into. We're going to drive to the next town. What are the things we need to do? How can we ensure our safety? Who do we need to be talking to? You're so caught up in that sort of moment. I've never indulged in sort of the danger because I'm just so keenly aware it's not my country. I mean, the closest I felt that was in Egypt and even in Egypt when we had a moment where we were being shot at. It was the first time that I felt like it was my country as well, but I've never, I've never explored it in any way. I just don't allow myself to go there because seared in my mind is watching and managing Iraqis every week who were losing relatives, whose houses were being raided by a militia or by U.S. troops, and you'd be on the phone and hearing the crashing and of their house that I just, I don't even know how to go to the danger to me. I feel like I've made the decision. I've accepted the risks. I've always gone in knowing I might not come out or I might come out with 10 fingers and 10 toes. I've accepted that. Um, and then that's kind of where I put it, and I don't think about it again. I, I feel like my focus has got to be protecting, um, making responsible decisions, protecting the staff, not going outside the bounds of what I feel comfortable doing in terms of risk, and that's as far as I indulge it. You know, and you, you also um, were one of the first journalists in to Cairo after the Arab Spring, and you remained there as the Cairo bureau chief. That was a, a, a pretty intense time as well. Tell us what it was like as an Egyptian American, having family there. What was it like um, covering the aftermath of the Arab Spring in Cairo? So it was funny for me because the Arab Spring was the first story where I knew it intimately, right? I mean, you would see all these people in Tahrir Square. And I remember the reporting at the time as all Egyptians wanted change in Egypt. And I thought, that's not the Egypt I know. I mean, you get my family together. We cannot agree on what day of the week it is. So the idea that 80 million of us had agreed on something was extraordinary to me. 
So I remember go- seeing the images in Tahrir Square, and I would call relatives, and I would say, are you in Tahrir Square? They say, no, we're sitting at home getting fat. Okay. And then I call the next relative. Are you in Tahrir Square? No, we're looting. I call the next relative. Are you in Tahrir Square? No, we just beat up a looter. Are you in Tahrir Square? No, we're devastated that Mubarak might leave. And it was my first time I realized the nuance of a story that sometimes when you're just parachuting in, you don't get. And it was so helpful to me when I went in to cover the post-Arab Spring period because that um, willingness to generalize how Egyptians felt, I think, ended up misleading readers down the road for the instability that followed. Because in February of 2011, Egypt was presented as everybody wanted change. And I knew from even then that that was not what Egyptians wanted, that there was a whole myriad of, of, of proposals or some Egyptians who wanted Mubarak to fall, some who wanted early elections, some who were devastated that he had been forced out of power. So it was really helpful to me because every time something would happen, I could find a relative anywhere. I mean, we would go to protests with thousands of people and always knew somebody there. You'd run into someone who you knew, which was um, a little worrisome, but um, um, helpful as well. So I think that was a great thing that covering Egypt gave me, being an Egyptian-American. This was a story where I didn't have to depend on sources. I didn't have to kind of go with my gut. I had access to every segment of the Egyptian population. Looking back now at the Egyptian spring, uh, was it a good thing? Was it a bad thing? And where is Egypt today? So I wear this ring, and it says tefetl, which is optimism in Arabic, and I bought it for the Egyptian youth because you see where it happened in Egypt, and you realize that because everybody had been planning towards the fall of Mubarak and not the post-period, it was prone to come apart. And I was in Egypt last year, and you talk to the youth, and they understand now, in a way, when you, would, when you would talk to them in 2012, 13, 14, they didn't, that they needed to come up with a long-term plan. You have thousands of Egyptians that are in jail right now. A lot of those people are going to get out, and they're gonna, their, their experience in jail and their experience with the regime has changed them. Those who are out, you can see that there's real planning going on to bring about substantive change. I think it was bad in the sense that you now have a region that is more unstable. You have an economic um, problem in Egypt. You have a falling uh, Egyptian pound. You have the falling tourism. You see the economic suffering of everyday people. But I think it's a good thing because in that it took the lid off of fear. And you have now a population that knows that it can bring about change, that it has some say over the destiny of its country. I think the kind of change that they were aspiring to, I think we're still decades away from it. But I can't help when I talk to the youth be really optimistic about where Egypt's going because they are emboldened in a way and they are hopeful when you, in a way that I've never seen Egyptians uh, in my life. And, and that in that regard, I'm, I'm hopeful. And I'm not proposing that a revolution or some systemic change has to happen. I'm simply saying that there are people in Egypt for the first time who are taking ownership in their destiny in a way that didn't happen before. We uh, started this series of podcasts basically because Dr. John Hamry, uh, who is the head of CSIS, said, I see communications as a national security issue, not just uh, uh, something that has to do with newspapers and whether or not they can survive and, and so on. But something that uh, if we don't have a good communications landscape, as it were, in the United States, it becomes a national security issue. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? I agree. I mean, one of the reasons I'm at the Pentagon is I feel responsibility. 
um, to report on what we are asking of, of those who put on the uniform. We are asking people to give, in some cases, give up their lives for a mission. And our responsibility is to ask, did we, you know, we, the, the promise that we make to the troops is we're not going to put you in harm's way unless it's absolutely necessary. And I feel like my job as a journalist is to make sure that that contract, if you will, is upheld. I, I think the greatest example of that it would be the run-up to the Iraq war and the propensity of some to sort of um, go along with what top officials were saying to protect access. I think one of the biggest mis mistakes we make in this town is this belief that if you give people um, the platform to say whatever, that you're protecting your access. And, you know, I was at Knight Ritter at the time, which was very aggressive in questioning the premise of the war because, you know, if you're the New York Times or the Washington Post, and I'm just naming, I'm not picking on them in particular, and you're talking, and your senior administration source is the president or the vice president or the secretary of defense, you feel need to protect it. Well, Knight Ritter, we were never seen that way. We only had access to the people in the middle. And so we had nothing that we had to protect in terms of access, and we're willing to be more aggressive. And I just think um, the Iraq war, the run-up to it is such a important example of what happens when that, that communications um, responsibility is not taken um, as well as is not protected as well as it should be. Um, and I'm really proud to be have been a part of Knight Ritter um, that questioned it. I always say to people because, you know, I, I'm known as a bit of a malcontent at the Pentagon and people always tell me, you know, you're going to lose access. And to me, I don't see what the value of the access is if it's just for talking points and spin. So I think that's one of the conversations we have to have in, in terms of Washington reporting about what what is the value of access versus our responsibility to the reader and to, to, to national security in terms of communicating what's being asked of, of the men and women in uniform when we put them in harm's way, and is it worth it? Was it a mistake for us to go into Iraq, and I'm talking now about the second Iraq war, which I assume that's what you're talking about? I'm hesitant to always make any sort of um, definitive claims. I mean, I think I can tell you I was in Jordan when, when, when the war started, and I remember feeling a pit in my stomach because I— was 25 at the time, and I thought, I don't understand this Saddam-Osama bin Laden connection. I thought maybe there's just something that I don't understand. I think um, I think regime change is just part of it, and it's the easiest part in a sense. But an outside country coming in and rebuilding a state that it knows so little about is almost an impossible task. And I think if Arab Spring taught us anything, it's that movements and major changes in a country have to happen organically within that country. I, I mean, I've, I feel like being a war reporter has made me more, more of a realist. And I, I find myself thinking, you know, if, if the players on the ground cannot up in the government with their own um, fortitude, with their own planning, then they probably aren't in the position to handle the complicated post-war period. And I think that's just a position that's come out of being in places like Egypt and Afghanistan and Iraq and Libya. So um, I just think nation building, even for a country as powerful as the United States, is very difficult because upending a system that has the momentum of decades and culture and um, um, known practices is such an, an extraordinary task, and and I, I'm not sure that it's worth it um, when it when it comes at such a high cost. You know, it's it's very interesting, and I think I think a lot of war correspondents uh, and what you learn when you're on the ground. I think I think that is one of the great lessons. I remember I I went to Vietnam 
as a reporter for a Texas newspaper. Lyndon Johnson was our president. He was from Texas. I was very much a hawk. Uh, I thought it was the right thing for us to do. We'd been told about the falling dominoes, that if we, if we didn't stop communism there, we'd have to stop them in San Francisco, and on and on. <clears throat> After I was there about six weeks, I came to the conclusion that you can help people do things, but you can't do it for them. And that was kind of the bottom line for me on that. And I began to wonder how is it in, you know, my, my information was anecdotal. It was just what I was seeing with my own eyes about, you know, when, when Americans were going across a field and we were told the Viet Cong were in the tree line and you couldn't get the South Vietnamese troops to go with you. Yeah, uh, it, it, that's that's when I came to this conclusion. Now, what I didn't ki- kind of understand in, in those days was we were just the latest in a long line of foreign troops that had come to Vietnam, and they had been fighting this war for a long, long time before we got there. But again, it goes back to just, and it sounds to me like you came kind of to the same conclusion that. We can help, but we can't do it for them. Yeah, and I love that you talk about anecdotes because that's it's a funny thing when you're a war reporter because you're thinking to yourself, can I really make conclusions from this anecdote and that anecdote? You're, all these anecdotes you're threading together because when you think about war reporting, you think about you know generals and 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 doctrine and and the art of war and all these sort of doctrinal terms, and then you realize that your understanding of it is interacting with this person or seeing that fight play out or seeing that troop interact with that local. Um, resident. And it's a funny thing about war reporting because it's often the threading of anecdotes that sort of, it's a, it's a different kind of lesson and um, study of war. And, and I think it's a fascinating one because I have the same experience that I, I didn't see everything that happened in Iraq. I didn't see everything that happened in Libya. But my understanding of it is a threading of anecdotes. And that's, that's one of the joys of war reporting and also one of the great responsibilities because you have to look at that anecdote and figure out how much can I conclude from that anecdote? You know, in Afghanistan, an anecdote in one village might not tell you anything about the next village. And what happens in Ramadi might not tell you anything about Iraq uh, broadly. So it's this funny experience where you're looking at anecdotes and you're trying to fit them into the broader picture. How much does this educate the reader? And it's one of my favorite parts of the job because it's a different kind of study. You're studying people and experiences and you're piecing them together in sort of this macro picture. It's, 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 and it's wonderful to hear that you had that experience in Vietnam because I think it's a trademark of war reporting. It's just watching what happens in front of you and trying to piece it together in this big grand fight for uh, 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 stopping the domino theory or spreading democracy in the Middle East. You know, Nancy, you you, um, you mentioned that you're known as a bit of a malcontent at the Pentagon. Pretty recently, you've gone from being a reporter with a major newspaper chain, McClatchy, to uh, working with the Daily Beast. How is working with the Daily Beast different, and what's your status these days at the Pentagon? Well, it's funny because... Now, it's not just my own reputation, but the reputation of the Daily Beast. So it's, a, it's been the biggest change in my career. It's funny. It's, it's bigger than going from Egypt to Libya or Egypt to Afghanistan. Is going from newspaper wires to an online publication because everything is different. It's, it's about, you know, I grew up at a time when you were told you had to get it 100% right. And now we live in a time where you can get it 70% right as long as you're first and you're expected to, to adjust in real time. And that's been new for me. And the idea of sort of 
um, not reporting so much is that you're you're not only reporting, but now you're part of this sort of content. You know, I feel a content provider rather than just a reporter, and the 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 um, priority of speed, and at the same time, the impact of a Daily Beast story is remarkable. So at McClatchy, you could spend a week on a story and maybe have a few thousand people read it. At the Daily Beast, tens of thousands of people read it, and so it's a fascinating thing that 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 the packaging of it has become so important, not sort of the nuance of language, all those things that we were sort of taught to do. It's literally as quickly as possible, even if it's just a few hundred words, getting it out there and sort of taking the reader along in real time to how you're adjusting your thought process. And that's, that's probably been the biggest adjustment, but I'm constantly amazed at how much a Daily Beast story can, can change the discourse in a way, um, a McClatchy story, um, couldn't. Now, that said, at the military, which is a very traditional place, um, they're not um, as um, ready to embrace online publications. Um, um, it's harder to get invited on trips with the secretary or with the chairman because they're more inclined to reach out to, to traditional media. But I, I do hope that that starts to change because I don't think you can treat places like the Daily Beast and BuzzFeed and Huffington Post and push them off to a side because I think they're losing a real um, key audience that I think is reaching younger people quickly and more effectively than traditional media. I, I want to go back to what you just said about <clears throat> you were used to a world where you had to be 100% right before you published, and now it's a world where if you're 70% right, I take it you're not comfortable with that. I'm certainly not. No. I mean, I I feel, you know, I often say my relationship with the reader is one of my most cherished relationships of my life. I feel such a responsibility to them, and, I, and I'm so conservative on these things as it is. And um, so it's hard for me to just jump, and because and, I'm so nervous every time, you know, because my, my, my inclination is to be like, well, maybe I can call one more person just to make sure. And, um, and I hate when I have to make an adjustment. I, I just... It, it just it bothers me for the rest of the night. I mean, I I know for younger people this will sound crazy, but there was a time where you spent your career and you'd shoot up in bed in the middle of the night and think, oh, my goodness, did I get that wrong? And, and in one way, it's great that you can sort of fix it as soon as you think about it, but I just feel such guilt about the readers I failed who read it wrong the first time. And yet I feel like I've been pretty good about it, and, I, and I'm lucky in that my editors are really um, – receptive to me saying I'm not ready and you and you you just adjust so before I instead of my goal now is instead of putting out the 70 percent of in terms of right I'll put out a hundred percent right but not as much information as I would and that's the adjustment that I'm trying to make that's my own way of sort of reconciling this and I'm happy to hear you say you have editors because like all correspondents, we all hate editors, yeah. right? <laughs> we, 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 we and correspondents hate. have editors who hate them, just so you know. My editors exactly. probably curse my name more often than not. <laughs> but but the fact is um, editors are a good thing. It, yeah. It's always good to have somebody else check your work uh, before it goes on. But uh, one of the things that, that we've talked about through these podcasts there are organizations out there where there are no editors. It just goes out there, and if it turns out to be wrong, then people have to deal with it. And not just the reporter who's published the story, but the person who may have been uh, not necessarily libeled, but uh, not treated well because something uh, wrong has been printed or or, or put on the uh, on the podcast or the digital or someplace. Yeah. 
and then it has to be dealt with. I often say the integrity of a story increasingly almost hinges almost exclusively on the integrity of the journalist behind it. You know, there was a time, I think, when readers were like New York Times readers or Dallas Morning News readers or Washington Post readers. And now I find readers increasingly are reading that a particular journalist. I mean, I found, for example, when I moved from McClatchy to the Daily Beast that readers came along with me. And I think that's a function of stories increasingly hinging on the integrity of the person writing it because there aren't the kind of editors there. And I think you're starting to see that evolution. I, myself, as a reader, I don't read the New York Times exclusively. I'm reading the byline first because now I have an advantage in that I know the people who are behind it. But even as a reader, I find myself gravitating towards a byline and not an organization. I think that is a function of disappearing editors and disappearing sort of um, um, corporate responsibility um, towards the story. And so I think you're seeing that in how that, that trend is reflected in how people are consuming information. I just want to say, you know, editors are not just good for that, but in a war zone, they're really important because you're so close to conflict that you need somebody to kind of give things in perspective. I mean, my favorite example of this is um, I was in Baghdad at the height of it, and I called my editor, as I did every day, and he said, anything going on? I said, no, 50 dead. And he said, you know, 50 dead is a big deal, but I had become so uh, used to it that I didn't think about it. And when he said that, I realized that I had sort of lost perspective. And I ended up doing a story about um, people who, because I realized if I had become numb to the number, imagine the reader. And I thought, okay, I need to adjust my thinking. And I ended up finding people who were tattooing their name and address and phone number on their bodies because they had gone to the morgue so often looking for their own loved ones and for the inevitable day that they would end up at the morgue. And we met a guy um, who had his name on a thigh because he said when he went, he saw bodies without heads and bodies without arms, but he never saw a body without a thigh. And I and it was my way of sort of addressing, the instead of say, sort of reporting a story that said 50 died, I wanted to get at what happens when you live in a country where 50 people are dying every day. And it was just him saying you know, it's a big deal that 50 people are dying. That made me a better reporter. Well, you know, as we as we uh, are doing this this podcast, the story in the Washington Post this morning, 75 people killed in a Pakistani hospital. Mm-hmm. And, and I noticed that the Post put that back on page 8 or 9 because right. there was so much other news. And it's sometimes these things become almost routine. Right. And, and you're exactly right. 75 people dead is is a big story where wherever that happens and because that's 75 human beings yeah it's not a statistic these are all human beings and but because there's so much of this now we all tend to kind of say hmm 75 dead what else is new today yeah and you see that in Syria as well that there's um, or now with these attacks, I mean, it was worrisome really last month when you had one ISIS attack or another and one, a series of pollution, police shootings after another. I was worried about myself becoming immune to it because I thought, what happens to us as a society when we say, well, five killed here or 50 killed in a hospital in Aleppo here? And I don't know how you address it because we live in a time where there's so much information coming at people. And I think so often it's almost overwhelming. It's overwhelming for me. I can only imagine somebody who's not familiar with the Middle East, how you take all that in and what is your responsibility as a consumer for news. And it's something we haven't answered. It's funny, there's more information out there, and yet you can feel that readers are sort of less informed. And I think one of the things we have to look at in this industry is how do you 
reach readers. It's, you know, it says something that people turn to Bill Maher or John Oliver or before John Stewart and now Trevor Noah for an understanding of news that our traditional means and the sort of ambush of tweets and Facebook messages, I think, is actually making people less informed and less uh, able to connect with people. On top of that, you have fewer journalists who are out there who can sort of step back for a day and spend a couple of days looking for the man who's, who's tattooed his name because that's what you need to. And the lack of resources has us jumping from one crisis to another. Nancy, one of the things I think the Daily Beast is pretty good at is promoting the culture of individual journalists. I mean, I think a lot of people go to the Daily Beast not because it's the Daily Beast, but because Nancy Youssef writes there or Shane Harris writes there or before... Um, you guys were there, Josh Rogan writes there. Um, do you think that's a good thing, and do you think that that helps um, you as a journalist? So I, I know that the younger journalists are really into branding, and I've been really almost stubbornly trying to not go down that road because I just want to be loyal to the reader. That I, I, I accept that this is sort of the world we live in, and I've sort of come up with my own way to do it that's sort of comfortable for me, but I don't think of myself as a brand, I think of myself as an advocate for the reader. And that's, I have to, I mean, the only sort of concession that I've made just for my own entertainment is to do the, I have a thing on um, Twitter called Overheard at the Pentagon where I'll put out anonymous quotes. And it's my way of sort of reconciling that I have to sort of be a part of the social media age. But I did it in a way that was true to me because I thought I'm also informing the public because I wanted to say in my own way so here are the talking points officially that the Pentagon's put out because we now live in a town where everything's talking points and messaging. And here's what they really think and sort of be funny. So that's been my way to sort of come up with a brand without becoming beholden to a brand because I really, I cherish my relationship with the reader. And I really believe good journalism takes care of all those sort of trends and branding. I mean, I'm amazed sometimes, you know, we, we we get a count of how how popular our stories were relative to others. I'm always amazed. I'll I'll think, how am I going to compete with, you know, politics in these in this day and age? Readers love good journalism. They really do. I'll write stories sometimes just for me because I just feel it's so important. And I'm thinking I'm so in the weeds, and no one else is going to care about me. But I don't care. I'm going to do it, and it'll get amazing feedback. So I don't worry as much about the brand. I've made my concession, and I've done it in a way that I feel is still serving the reader. But I really believe good journalism is can become the brand in and of itself, and it takes care of everything else. Do you think some journalists are obsessed with the number of eyeballs on their articles, the number of hits they get per piece? It, it's hard not to be, because increasingly you're being measured on that. Sure. You know, um, you know you'll, there are organizations you'll get ranked. Uh, how many people, you know, where did you fall at the end of the month or um, people who whose jobs are dependent on it. Um, um, the, what, you know, you'll go into a newsroom and in real time you'll see who's reading what when. It's very, very hard to not um, not be consumed by it because in a newsroom there's a feeling that that is a measure of success. Some people have in their sort of job descriptions they need to have a certain amount. Some people have to have a certain amount of followers on Twitter. It's very, very hard to not um, put that into your mindset in terms of how you um, approach stories. So I'm, I'm empathetic to it because you, it's, it's so ubiquitous really um, in the industry. This is not and it's not exclusive to some place like the Daily Beast at all. It's I don't know I don't know of a new, newspaper reporter who hasn't been hit by this. I mean, not to pick on the New York Times, but um, you know, we've had New York Times reporters tell us, "Hey, you know, this article we wrote 
had 3.25 million uh, eyeballs on it, you know, in one day versus another story that one of our uh, one of my colleagues had that only had 75,000 eyeballs. And so they're looking at it, too. Yeah. And I'm really lucky because my editor at The Beast has been incredibly patient with me and allowed me to do work sometimes. You know, he, he's really good at sort of helping shape something in a way that would be receptive um, uh, you know, uh, the Daily Beast headlines, I mean, I could never be as creative as they are in terms of I'm, I'm so dull that they have to write them for me. And, and usually, I mean, I've tried writing headlines and they literally laugh at me. So um, they're much better to sort of getting eyeballs on a story. I, I mean, look, the, the, the problem is it's, a, it's an economic problem. I mean, and journalism is not always about entertaining. I mean, I always say, you know, it's it's like we can't you can't eat candy every meal, you know. And I, I mean, do you, so we live in an age now where at best you can just put bacon around the broccoli and, and maybe get them to eat that way. I mean, that's how I think about it, because um, there is an expectation from the reader. But, you know, um, informing yourself is not entertainment. And I understand that it can be tedious. And we demand a lot of the reader because you have to go to I mean, I personally have to read like 10 stories on a subject to just get a basic of understanding. It's not fair what we're doing to the reader. We're asking a tremendous amount of them because we're just churning out so much and ambushing them. I understand that. But I think this expectation that not only that you be entertained, but it be entertained for free in a lot of cases because people don't want to pay, it comes at a cost. And I think the cost is um, trying to find information in a climate where you're being measured on clicks. Nancy, we could uh, talk to you all afternoon. Uh, this has just been fascinating to get your take on this. But let me just kind of wrap this up with one, one question. How, how do you think we're doing as journalists today? What are our greatest challenges? And where do you see uh, journalism going? So I think the greatest challenge is that increasingly because of budgetary pressures, um, news organizations are cutting reporters and resources and then wondering why readers aren't coming in. I worry about the fact that we don't have people, um, um, you know, at the Pentagon even. We, th there are very few people who are allotted the freedom to just cover the Pentagon. A lot of people are having to cover multiple beats. We don't have people in state capitals anymore the way we used to. Local newspapers are becoming more aggregate sources in news reporting. And I worry that we're losing those those key um, journalists who help us really understand an issue like the Flint water crisis that you need at a local level. Um, I, I don't know where the industry is going other than I think in this sort of age of Facebook and Twitter where people um, are given information that reaffirms what they believe. I think we're getting away from general interest newspapers and more towards specialized publications and sort of um, information that is sort of catered to your own belief system rather than the serendipity of flipping through a New York Times and discovering something that you aren't even interested in until you stumbled across it. Um, I, I think, I wonder how long television news and general newspapers will be around, um, but I, th I still think it's the greatest job in the whole world. I mean, you're paid to watch history unfold, and, and I figure even if it all goes away, it's, been, it's just been the greatest experience of my life, and I'm so grateful that I got to be a part of it. And and I think as a journalist, you have to go into the job every day that way. You have an incredible – I mean, I go to the Pentagon every day, and I talk to generals, and I, and I can help shape people's understanding of war. And I, it's okay. And everything else, you just – you find a way to maneuver in it and be true to yourself and, um, and, hope that, uh, and hope that you're doing something good for the reader. Nancy Youssef. For Andrew Schwartz, this is Bob Schieffer. If you like this podcast, leave us a review on iTunes. 
visit us at csis.org and check out the Schieffer College of Communication at schieffercollege.tcu.edu.